Welcome back, guys, to another episode of Unprecedented, the podcast that takes you through the life of all of our American presidents, their ups and downs, the trials and tribulations, and how they got to the White House. And as always, with me, the man that writes the scripts, does the research, Neil, how's it going? It's going good, as always. Just uh, ready to dive into a new uh, era, new topic here of unprecedented in terms of um, international affairs and international cooperation. We haven't gotten much into that, so I'm excited to, to get into it. So, Neil, without further ado, who are we talking about? Harry Truman. All right, so the year is 1948. Mahatma Gandhi was assassinated in New Delhi. We see the birth of NASCAR, McCollum versus the Board of Education, rules that religious instruction in public schools violate the U.S. Constitution. World Health Organization is established by the United Nations. The first monkey is an uh, astronaut. is shot into space. Uh, his name is Albert One, uh, beating out Bezos and his billionaire club. The Cold War is brewing in the background as tension rises with the Soviet Union. And the 1948 elections elect uh, Democrat Harry S. Truman for his second term. That's right, guys. I did an M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, I didn't want to spoil what happens if you didn't know what happens with Harry and how he became uh, president for his first term. So I'm going to leave that to Neil. Neil, without all that out of the way, am I stumbling through historical events? How about you introduce us to Harry S. Truman? Yes, great. So, yes, very excited for today's episode because this is like, a, a, again, a, I think a new territory of presidents, like a topics within presidents that we haven't really, you know, explored or covered just yet. So we're at our ninth, president's na- ninth president now and that we've covered so far in Harry Truman. And, and for all our unprecedented episodes until this point, we spent considerably less time covering international affairs and international institutions that I said before. So we came off a two-parter for Ronald Reagan not that long ago that was, you know, very domestically focused, as was Monroe and, and LBJ in our prior episodes. LBJ and Reagan had a lot going on in international affairs especially, but, you know, what they're remembered from for their presidencies is, is much more based in the domestic policies and culture shifting political attitudes that resonate in American society today. You know, it's not for a lack of interest in international affairs on my part. You know, I've actually had a lot of, you know, more hands-on experience in studying global affairs and, and institutions. I, mean, I was like, I was vice president of my university's Mali United Nations team in college. And, and I did my senior thesis on the International Criminal Court where, you know, I had an amazing opportunity to go to The Hague and then the Netherlands and, and do part of my research there. So, And you're friends with a Puerto Rican. So, you know. <laughs> Yeah, just, just checking all the, the dots, I guess. Checking all the boxes. <laughs> but I'm, I'm saying all this to emphasize that, you know, I'm, I'm really excited for today's episode because it's, it's going to be much different from, you know, what we're used to covering. And there's literally so much happening during Harry Truman's presidency around the world that it became the hardest time knowing, you know, how to organize topics in this episode. You know, like all the Marvel movie plots combined, you know, couldn't really match the stakes of the decisions that had to be made in the year of 1945. And in researching for this episode, you know, while World War II may seem like it's a subject that is constantly discussed in our history and, and used in movies, I think people, um, to, you know, people like are still, you know, forgetting that this war only ended about 75 years ago. You know, those six to 18 years, depending on, you know, when you want to say the war officially started, are very arguably the most important in human history, or at least in contention with many others. And so, yeah. 
the whole world that we know today is, is shaped by, you know, pretty much every facet of that war, the, the fighting and events within it, as well as the decisions and organizing that came from the result of it. So again, you know, this is all to emphasize that Truman's presidency was a big deal, you know, not just for the U.S., but, you know, every part of the globe. So and also the, sorry to interrupt you, the, the manufacturing side of how big companies like Ford and other, you know, big names of that time just revolutionized how industrialized our war efforts became yeah weaponry um and i say that because recently uh my wife and i my wife uh we went to new orleans and there was this huge world war ii museum there for some reason and we love to go to museums and we just walked into there and it's it was so overwhelming uh just by like the sheer chaos that those few short years were uh during the war so yeah it's it's it, it, you can understand why hollywood has not let go by making like 50 movies about you know those events yeah i, I don't think that it's gonna let up anytime soon it's just uh, such a large scale just so many stories still like just packed into all of that that yeah, you know, yeah. just so much content and you know, to continue being straightforward here, I, I think this episode would be wasted if we spent so much time, you know, detailing how Truman rose to political prominence. You know, there are other presidents, you know, some of whom we've already covered who, you know, have more interesting political rises and less notable presidencies. So I honestly just want to dive right into his presidential years in today's episode and, and maybe fill in some personal background on Truman along the way. But because if we're going, because if we're going to do this episode any justice, we need to pay a lot more attention to the global context of his presidency and how the, um, his decisions shaped so much of the geographic and political order that we see today. So we're um, not going to talk about his grades in, in <laughs> school and not, nothing like that? No, um, no. Well, I, I think that I think that our audience will be okay if we, if we skip that part. So okay. you ready? Let's get right into Harry Truman in 1945. Truman was sworn in as president of the United States on April 12th, 1945, just 82 days after being sworn in as vice president. And on the same day that Franklin D. Roosevelt dies of a cerebral hemorrhage, uh, the timing of Roosevelt's death to the country is shocking, you know, as he just started his fourth term and had been the president, you know, to guide the country out of, you know, not only a Great Depression, but almost the entirety of its participation in World War II. Truman only became the vice president for Roosevelt's fourth term was in, and really had like no involvement within the administration up until Roosevelt died. You know, he only met with Roosevelt twice while he was vice president and was never briefed on any intelligence regarding U.S. plans for how to proceed in the war. You know, he mainly was there to shape up the ticket for Roosevelt to secure another easy election win, as is, you know, Roosevelt's former VP, Henry Wallace, was, was thought to be too far to the left at that point. And Truman's political brand, you know, really was just built on his efforts to fight corruption in the military as a member of the Senate. Uh, he was chairing, he's chairing the Committee on Military Affairs in the Senate and, and uncovering waste and fraud in who was awarded government contracts to supply military resources and infrastructure. So Truman himself was a soldier during World War One, and military operations was a very useful expertise that he utilized to, to kickstart his political career. And that's kind of like encapsulates, you know, his rise at this point. So um, that, was that his like selling point to the public? Uh, this war hero since war has been so fresh in the minds of of the United States uh, citizens, was that like his sole purpose or was he more sold as the anti, you know, former vice president since you mentioned that he was so far left? Yeah, I think that that Roosevelt, you know, whatever trouble he did run into electorally, it was, you know, he's mainly being criticized for, you know, just socializing the country so much with New Deal programs. And Truman, I think, represented a, a more, you know, moderate 
you know, balancing part of the ticket at that point in terms of like, you know, I think the country again was just very, I mean, the, the whole country was, you know, locked into winning the war. And so like bringing in someone who was more of like a military known guy who didn't really have a lot of like hot takes on, you know, what to do about socializing the economy was a safe choice. And it ended up being really safe in the sense that, you know, Roosevelt still had a landslide victory in 1944. And so obviously, you know, the all encompassing task that Truman has before him is, is how to guide the U.S. in finishing the war in the quickest and, and least deadliest way possible. And, it's not until Truman takes office as the president that he learns about a secret program called the Manhattan Project. You know, this was a program in the works for years from the U.S.'s, you know, top scientists and physicists residing in the country at the time to work with the military to make a weapon that could put the country at an insurmountable advantage above all other nations in the war. That weapon being the atomic bomb. Um, yeah. Now, you know, World War II up until this point was already one of the the deadliest wars in history of the, in the history of the world. Um, the, the current estimate, you know, keyword current, you know, as this number still is always subject to change with further research, has a count of approximately 75 million people dying as a result of war. You know, that doesn't include, you know, the mass amounts of other statistics in regards to, you know, how people you know, suffered, you know, as a weaponry and cruelty were indescribably devastating. You know, so by the time Truman arrives in office, though, the conclusion of the war actually seems very near. You know, the tide changed considerably for the Allies in 1944 and 1945 in Europe, with the Soviet Union pushing Germany back to Berlin and the U.S. and the U.K. landing in Normandy and pushing the Germans back on the Western Front through North Africa and Italy. So lucky for Truman, victory was actually able to be officially declared over Germany less than a month after he became president in May. The story in the Pacific Theater with fighting against Japan was different, though. While the U.S. had also won major victories throughout the Western Front of the war, they still were a ways off of a Japanese surrender, at least in most historical accounts at the time. You know, the war was equally as devastating in the Pacific as the U.S. had to make progress by incurring incredible costs and in, in individual takeovers of Pacific islands to drive Japan back. Truman, you know, has one of the most controversial and terrible decisions that any president has and hopefully will ever have to make. You know, does he continue the same course with pushing Japan back all the way until the U.S. can invade the mainland of the country and force a surrender? Or does he use a weapon, you know, that is so horrifyingly powerful that kills hundreds of thousands of people in one explosion with a, with a justification that it saves lives on both sides that would have been lost in the resources it would have taken to invade Japan. Now, I want to stress that this is a heavy subject and, and really hard to put input any justification for the horrifyingly, you know, cruel footage and photos that exist from the atomic bombs that were dropped mm -hmm. on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You know, Truman will later defend his decision to drop two atomic bombs by making the claim that deaths would have basically doubled from that point in the Pacific theater if he would have not taken the actions that he did. Other historians, though, are, are not as convinced on that point, you know, as there's a lot of debate that the Japanese emperor at the time, you know, Hirohito, was ready to come to the negotiating table for terms to end the fighting in the Pacific. And, and Truman himself, and, and Truman himself instead heavily pursued dropping the bombs to send a message to the Soviet Union for post-World War II advantages and negotiations. There's really no way for me to definitely say who is right and wrong in these contrasting takeaways in the decisions to use those bombs. But it's really hard for me to think about Truman without that decision being at the forefront of his presidency. And again, you know, his presidency is packed with so many significant decisions. And that's why I emphasized earlier the amount of destruction and death that had already been witnessed up until that point during the war. You know, everyone wanted it to end. And what the war did to depreciate 
the scale of human life and what people were willing to sacrifice to save lives obviously was at a level that, you know, our current generations, you know, maybe besides those, you know, few World War II vets who are still alive today, you know, can understand. And so, yeah, you can't, you can't fathom the fatigue that most, not only the soldiers in the ground, but, you know, the generals and the the politicians making all these decisions must have had up to that point where they finally defeat uh, this you know, huge army that it felt like at any moment could have just won, period. Like uh, from, from the Nazis, they finally defeat them. And suddenly they have this empire, the the Red Empire, um, still trying to fulfill their mission, which was, you know, conquering China and the rest of the Pacific. Um, but it's at the same time, like, it's, it's very jarring to justify destroying so many lives even though you know that the, the actual empire was doing the same thing to the to all the civilizations that were they were invading um, yeah. especially in china they would destroy families kids yeah they were doing yeah. atrocities themselves but just like justifying an evil with an evil it's always a slippery slope to go through like you're always going to end up dirty no matter what you're you're in war like it's it's impossible to say that there is any clean person that comes out of a, of a war situation but but those two bombs were hard to justify in my head yeah yeah and, and it, it it feels feels yeah. very like sour in the sense that like you know like you know that's like a lot of like the legacy like you know we're the only country to ever drop atomic bombs in another country and you know up, I, to, I up, to, the, up to this day yeah yeah and i hope but, it's, it's that way in the sense that yes. you know, doesn't happen again but i you know it, it feels feels bad to have that as like part of your you know nationality and not so, to not to like just like not to be so sour but uh like to take something away i recommend the manhattan project graphic novels this is like a, it's the take on the like what happened on the ground but it's kind of like a like a alternate universe where Einstein and all those stuff is it's a pretty cool read if you want to learn a little bit more of history because you know Oppenheimer and all those big names are part of it but it takes another turn so you can just sort of learn of history but you just have yeah. some some slight of fun with it yeah no I think that that I mean like the Manhattan Project itself is also like the super super fascinating so that's a oh yeah a great recommendation like I you know we, we even had you know like Soviet like spies within that whole project too and and you know that's how they were able to get atomic bomb pretty shortly after World War II so yeah oh, my- the Americans, yeah. if you want to, the Americans is the series, if you want to see yeah. stuff about uh, Soviet spies as well. I've been like, recommending that, actually. No, 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 yeah, no, I, I definitely need to, to get into that. So, anyway, you know, the ending of, of World War II drastically changes the power dynamics of the world. And the days of Great Britain, Germany, and France being the superpowers are officially gone, you know, as the U.S. and USSR emerge to fill the void that they leave. You know, the U.S. Is, is relatively the least unscathed country that emerges out of the entire war. As we lost about, you know, half a million soldiers, which is, you know, a lot. But the USSR, in comparison, lost 27 million people, 18 million of those being civilians. And so they easily incurred the most costs from the war and were the largest contributors also to, to bringing down Hitler, you know, as they were driving the Nazis back well before the U.S. and the U.K. were. And, you know, when it came to negotiations then of, of how the world should look with the fall of both Germany and Japan, the USSR, you know, quite reasonably felt they had earned the right to dictate, you know, a lot of the post-war decision making, especially in Eastern Europe. You know, so essentially, you know, they maintain occupation, some, you know, the entire Eastern Bloc of Europe in a lot of ways, you know, and this includes, you know, a whole lot of influence and, and pretty much 
you know, we can say almost direct control of countries like Poland, Ukraine, Hungary, the Baltics, and, you know, the Balkans, and the formation of the country of Yugoslavia. You know, Western Europe more or less, you know, returns to the same geographical barriers that existed before the war, with the exception of Germany. Um, you know, after observing the aftermath of World War I, every victor of World War II was, was absolutely set on maintaining cooper- or occupation over Germany. And so the country was divided into four parts, you know, with government control taking place in three parts of the West, divided between the UK, France, and the US, and the USSR having the whole eastern half of the country. So, so far, you know, many of these negotiations in dividing up power were, you know, not very controversial. It's really in places where the conflict was less direct in World War II that there's a huge struggle for, for power and really opens up the floodgates of the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. You'll remember, Yusuf, that you know, we went over the Monroe Doctrine already and, and how it dominated U.S. foreign policy for generations after its implementation, which essentially you know, was a commitment to stay out of European affairs but maintain the Western Hemisphere for U.S. interests at all costs. The Monroe Doctrine becomes a huge, a huge reason why the U.S. is so isolationist in culture during its first 150 years of existence. But Truman is set on permanently changing all of that encountering isolationism with the Truman Doctrine. Um, and to Truman's credit, he was incredibly successful in changing the whole culture of U.S. interference from isolationism and its foundations from the Monroe Doctrine. And in order to fully understand his strategy, it's important to highlight you know, what the needs were for the U.S. to insert itself in so many international disputes and how he was able to convince Americans to turn you know, 180 on, on how they felt about foreign interference. Many international governments throughout the world have to decide, you know, what the new direction for their countries is going to be in the aftermath of the war. It's, it's really a time for reflection for almost every corner of the world as the, world, as the war's effects, you know, were felt everywhere. The, the models of success that were most influential for how government should be set up uh, came from, you know, the U.S. and Soviet Union. And it was extremely beneficial to both countries for every country they could get to, you know, be pro-democratic or, or pro-communist. It's, or really just like, you know, pro like American or pro Soviet Union. I, I shouldn't say like democratic in that sense, because the U.S. often supported, you know, authoritarians who were friendly for the U.S. But this would open up trade and resources that the other country wouldn't be able to secure if they were able to have, you know, more influence on one country over another. So we essentially enter into a new era of, you know, governmental monopoly between the U.S. and Soviet Union to try to win over influence in the world and, and have a leg up in the Cold War as Truman is insistent that the, you know, much of the world will be dictated by communist governments with the Soviet Union being essentially the godfather of all of them if they did not actively promote governments that were more likely to be friendly with the U.S. So, you know, what is Truman's plan to, you know, win all the governments over, do you think, Yusef? Throws, you know, a shit ton of money at them. Um, what the U.S. distinctly has an advantage on the USSR at the time is that it is exceptionally more wealthy coming out of World War II. Sales of arms and weaponry throughout World War II allowed it to compile, you know, two-thirds of the world's gold supply. So the U.S. had a huge advantage here in, in the bribery department of international cooperation. Uh, but before, you know, we can throw cash at everybody, Truman, has need, Truman needs to, you know, come up with a plan on how to convince Congress and the American people that, you know, this is necessary, as historically Congress had very little interest in ever approving foreign aid. So this, in simplistic terms, is is how the birth so, of the red. Oh, yeah. Wait. So the the briberies would come in a form of us helping rebuild those specific countries' losses. Correct. 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 Okay. Yes. 
the selling point to the country is, you know, kind of how the, the Red Scare emerges in the U.S. Through the use of, you know, radio, newspapers, and posters, you know, the U.S. domestically embarks, you know, kind of on, on terrifying its citizens at home of the communist threat, stressing that, you know, everyone's way of life could be threatened and destroyed if the U.S. did not do everything it could to stop communism from expanding. You know, at, as we briefly mentioned in part one of the Reagan episode, anyone with communistic sympathies or ties were targeted, especially if they yeah. worked in the U.S. government. And Congress felt heavy pressure to allow Truman a full mandate of doing whatever he wanted abroad to stop communist governments from emerging. And so Truman did just that. Um, and this is how, you know, our modern foreign intelligence agencies were created as Truman helped pass and sign the National Security Act of 1947, which created the Department of Defense, the U.S. Air Force, and the CIA. Um, it is also during, you know, this time that we see the U.S. In first insert itself militarily in the, in the Middle East in countries like Iran, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia, among other nations. Greece becomes, you know, one of the first battlegrounds here for the U.S. and Soviet Union as it immediately engages in the civil war right after World War II ends in between, you know, a, a communist army and a U.S. backed, you know, government army. And the U.S. backed Greek forces, you know, end up defeating the communist side in that war. And so the U.S. further, sorry, but, but like, you know, even like going forward, the U.S. further secures all of the Western Europe, you know, from sympathizing with, with any communistic forms of government through the huge foreign policy act known as the Marshall Plan in 1948. In $2020, you know, the U.S. gave $114 billion in aid to Western Europe to completely rebuild and modernize the infrastructure that was destroyed during the war, which gave the U.S., you know, complete leverage and influence over the whole region. No way the Soviet Union could provide these kinds of resources. You know, we we take for granted the international relationships we have today, but, you know, if not for this, Western Europe could look a lot different. As many people were sympathetic to the Soviets and the effort that they put in, you know, stopping Hitler. And it wasn't clear cut, you know, at the end of the war that they were going to, you know, automatically ally itself, you know, with the U.S. over the Soviet Union until, you know, this aid comes in and kind of cements those relationships. Pretty wild considering that few decades ago, we were under the effects of the Great Depression and barely voting to be a functioning country. A few decades later, we're just shelling out billions and billions of dollars just to have friends abroad. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that that it that supports like, you know, the argument of like, we already kind of went through sort of a discussion in the Hoover episode of like, you know, what ended the depression or what could have ended the depression. But I mean, World War II makes us so rich. And mm -hmm. I mean, that feels that also feels dirty, <laughs> in a sense, you know, it's just super like, dirty. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, it does guide the nation out of the depression. And I mean, definitely helps kind of like, you know, make it long term where like, it's not gonna, I mean, people like worried about, you know, post World War Two depression, like how it happened in World War One for us, but that doesn't actually end up happening here. And so the USSR is obviously is becoming, you know, annoyed by this tactic from the US and even tries to counter US monetary influence by sealing off the whole city of Berlin to Western trade in 1949. But Truman responds to this move, though, by flying hundreds of fighter planes over the city of Berlin to drop food and supplies to the city for months until the Soviet Union just gives up and, and opens the city back up. So, you know, as you can see, the first few years after the war, the Truman Doctrine, you know, slowly gained an edge over Stalin's plans for spreading, you know, Soviet influence to other parts of the world. At least, you know, he had an edge in the race. And so further how, how are people dealing with, you know, I, I understand that uh, every nation has its own way of thinking and not every culture will 
you know, understand our way of uh, seeing the world. But why were people trying to decide between the United States and a and a country that essentially backed Hitler until they were betrayed by Hitler? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that so that's a that's a that's a good point. But I, I don't think that the U.S. is also very. Um, independent from it either i mean like the u.s decided to not get involved in 1939 i mean they, they decided not to get involved with the war all the way until you know pearl harbor right and like you know well, so one thing is not being involved and another thing is actively supporting this maniac that's trying to take over the entire world and almost succeeded yeah but then at the, in, in contrast i mean they also drove i mean they they brought down the, the same, you know, book. I mean, they brought down Hitler. That's the thing. Is that like I don't they know be, because they got betrayed by him. Like they were playing yeah. with a live tiger, and the tiger attacked them, <laughs> and so they had to try to put him down. But they brought the tiger to the party. Yeah, no, I'm not trying to advocate that. Like you know, Stalin, you know, wasn't you know uh, also a very much an evil um, ruler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like that's that's the thing. Is that like you know I think that the the form of government of you know not. I think that it was intriguing to a lot of nations that had never really like explored communism and, mm. you know, people just, and I think people at that point really wanted security, really just wanted, you know, guarantees and like, just know that they were going to have like a life of, you know, again, like guarantees of food, shelter and safety. And like, if the state could provide you all that, that was an intriguing prospect without, you know, having to just like rely on yourself on your own. So I think that that, you know, idea of just just like coming out of like you know such a destructive war seemed intriguing to a lot of nations and also you know there are a lot of power vacuums too so it's a you know there's a lot of like you know geographic influence in all these and so furthermore the u.s is also taking a big lead on promoting international cooperation through the institution of the united nations and the u.n security council and united nations becomes you know the first successful attempt to of forming an international governmental body where the world can decide you know together on what decisions should be made to resolve international disputes. You know, Truman himself asked Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, FDR's wife, to be one of the first delegates to the United Nations General Assembly, where she plays, you know, one of the most major roles in establishing the Universal Direct Declaration of Human Rights, which provided an international standard to promote the prevention of human rights abuses worldwide. Um, and the leadership of the U.S. through the its embrace of um, and early leadership in the UN also allows it to gain, you know, more worldwide popularity to try to maintain its edge against the Soviet Union abroad. And the U.S. also has, you know, a massive hand in carrying out the Nuremberg trials, um, which are, you know, military court tribunals that prosecute war criminals of, of Nazi Germany and establish the foundations of international law and providing accountability to committing war crimes. And a uh, fantastic movie, if you haven't seen it. I, I I, I'm yeah definitely I, I I haven't seen a lot of movies unfortunately so <laughs> but yeah Truman is enjoying unprecedented success internationally things are not going nearly as well for him domestically as he's extremely unpopular with most Americans at home by the time we reach the the, the 1948 election. Uh, a lot of that had to do with Truman's focus on international affairs and and less emphasis on U.S. domestic you know post-war recovery. As soon as the war ends, you know, railroad workers try for, or stri- sorry, strike for uh, better hours and wages. And Truman responds by trying to get a bill passed that would institute a draft for any railroad, sorry, railroad worker to be drafted into the military if they decided to strike. And, you know, that bill did pass the House, but got shut down in the Senate by one of the most, you know, influential senators at the time, which is 
Um, none other than William Howard Taft's son, Robert A. Taft. Truman's aggression toward labor movements was a bad look for him, especially on the progressive side of the Democratic Party. And in contrast, though, Truman alienated the, the Dixiecrat side of the Democratic Party by desegregating all branches of the U.S. military and pushing for the passage of more civil rights uh, bills into law. So, you know, this led to, you know, Democrats getting destroyed in the midterms in 1946, with Republicans having like a rare two years in the 20th century of completely taking control of Congress. And also made them, you know, one of the heaviest underdogs for an incumbent president in the 1948 election in, in U.S. history. Now, two members of his party, after failing to beat him in the Democratic primary, formed their own parties to run against him. You know, Henry Wallace, the, the prior vice president for um, FDR, formed the Progressive Party, and Strom Thurmond uh, formed a Dixiecrat Party, in addition you know, to taking on just Thomas Dewey in the Republican Party. So his um, chances were looking super, super slim. All presidential polling had Harry Truman losing the general election to Dewey, uh, which motivated Dewey to campaign you know, much less aggressively than Truman, and sort of like, you know, go through the motions of avoiding taking any risks um, you know, before election day and, and making too many campaign speeches to the American public. Truman, though, you know, again, shockingly defeats Dewey somewhat handedly by four percentage points. And, you know, that's, and you'll hear this, I think, with like a lot of historians in most podcasts, you know, what like really captures that election is like, you know, this Truman holding out the newspaper saying Dewey defeats Truman, um, just like a, kind of like a classic picture. But, you know, I, I think that that's you know, just such a weird contrast between, and I keep thinking of like a figure like, you know, Lyndon B. Johnson, who was so popular with domestic programs, but really just got, you know, a lot of international decisions wrong. And then we have, again, kind of like an opposite character with Truman. It's not necessarily getting every domestic decision wrong. It's just very unpopular at home with domestic decision making. There are other, you know, notable things going on within Truman's second term. You know, we have him supporting, you know, the formation of the country of Israel, which was very controversial at the time. And I mean, still is controversial today. We have constantly, you know, violence, you know, coming up because of, you know, just that country has developed within the past, you know, 70 to 80 years. And, you know, again, like Truman is, is one of the first heads of state to, you know, legitimize the formation of Israel. And that is a, is a big deal because we're trying to also establish a lot of good relationships in the Middle East so we can control, you know, oil production and trade. He's able to maintain those relationships even through this, you know, very controversial decision. And so uh, that's another, you know, big foreign policy win for him um, throughout these years. And so, um, again, you know, I think a very big theme of, you know, Harry Truman and his uh, whole second term here is, you know, where should the U.S. interfere and where it shouldn't. And, you know, that's, you know, I think a, a contrast here that we can talk about is, you know, the Chinese Civil War, between, you know, Mao Zedong and, um, you know, the, I'm like blanking right now on the like um, democratic, you know, like the U.S. decides, you know, not to, not to interfere in that war. I mean, at, at the same time, they don't really have the resources to interfere at the war because they're stretched thin and Truman um, sort of like doesn't have a, you know, enough, he, he, he demilitarizes a little too quickly after World War II um, to really hold up all of his commitments worldwide. And so, Mao Zedong wins the civil war in his army. And you see another, you see like, you know, China become a communist country, um, which is a big win for the Soviet Union at the time in terms of, you know, being able to have geographical control. And so we contrast this with the Korean War, um, where again, like since there was no action that was taken in the Chinese civil war, um, we have a power vacuum 
there that you know after Japan left post World War II, you know, the U.S. and the U.S.S.R. and the Soviet Union divided the country at the 38th parallel in 1945. And the U.N. after all, you know, just trying to you know settle and, and form like a you know governments in both the north parts and south parts of Korea, kind of takes over like you know the formation of the government of the South in, in 1948. Kim Il-sung, leader of the Communist Party in North Korea, invaded the South in 1950. And so the U.S. is aside, you know, what did they do about this? Did they take the route that they did with, you know, not trying to be as militarily interventionist, like directly in like, you know, kind of like the same model that they did with China? Or do they, you know, actually send in troops and try to, you know, stop, you know, the communist spread? And, you know, they took the latter option through the UN. This is like kind of like the start of our, you know, military, like our direct military, um, like assistance or not assistance, but really more so like spearheading of wars without getting approval from Congress. And it, it's actually, you know, a more rare time also that we actually get approval from the UN um, in this case as well, because, you know, the UN really, is, I mean, anymore is not really used to get a lot of approval in terms of military conflicts uh, or like military engagement. The US kind of, I mean, like the executive or like the president kind of just has like more of a, I guess I would say like a, again, like a mandate to just make that decision on their own now in terms of where we are in 2020. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you and ask you a question because it's kind of curious. China now is uh, utilized as the like what Russia used to be, or the Soviet Union used to be back then. Now China is like this big, bad, looming threat in the eyes of many in the government and uh, civilians, and is used as this boogeyman, essentially. Do historians uh, blame Truman for the formation of what essentially has become like this the biggest threat to our society. Yeah, I mean, in the eyes of certain people, I'm, I'm, like, I want to preface yeah, that. Yeah, that's a good, yeah, good um, emphasis. But like, yeah, I, I think that that is a good question. I don't think that people look back to his presidency enough about this because, yeah, there's, I mean, we could get like the Korean War is not a success by any means, but you don't know if like the U.S. doesn't get involved in that war. Do we just have, you know, a whole North Korea and the whole like Korean peninsula? Or, you know, it, it's kind of hard to say, like, if we don't get involved in Greece, do we have, you know, a communist Greece? Like, and, and that is, yeah, it's a very consequential decision because, you know, at the time it is very unpopular that like, you know, China just kind of like is left alone in that sense and is able to just like fall completely to, to communism, you know, besides, you know, like the island of Taiwan, that's where, the army flees and that's like the country of Taiwan today is like the old you know government of China and so yeah like I think that that is a great question that I don't think that enough I mean like, at least I don't see a lot of dialogue you know modern in, in modern politics today on like you know what the consequences was of you know what wars we did engage in very immediately post-World War II and what we didn't and so yeah like the U.S. has, you know, a very um, tough time in Korea as they, you know, they get involved in, and they actually push North Korean, they push the North Korean army back, you know, past the 38th parallel after, you know, almost the South almost being entirely overrun before the U.S. even gets involved in the first place. But, you know, at the same time, then China gets involved, right, as it looks like the U.S. is about to win a war, and they like kind of also, the U.S. gets pushed back where they're like locked in the stalemate, essentially for one and a half to two years. 
And that's kind of like a, a summary of like, you know, the territory advances in the Korean War. It's very much a stalemate where we have like a line today between those countries. Which is a wild concept, the, the, the border between uh, South and North Korea. If you've ever, if you've never like done a simple Google search of how it looks and how they both have a soldier standing just like staring at each other for the entire day. That's like if, if war breaks out, one of those two soldiers dies as a symbol of the worst the war starting essentially this is kind of yeah. wild yeah. wild job to have you stare at your counterpart the yeah. entire day in one of these days you may or may not die yeah and like that was so you know like a few years ago when they had those like you know weird like um peace negotiations going not like peace negotiations but like you, know, you saw like uh, the leader of north korea like walk into south korea and vice versa like that was you know a huge deal like you know we mm -hmm. still like you know this is you know 70 years ago where this is always you know like the, the border hasn't changed like north korea has been completely kind of like cut off from the rest of the world and like has by all indications have wanted has wanted it that way in, in a lot of ways and so yeah it's it's just it's very deep you know truman again like becomes very unpopular not necessarily for how the war well partly for how the war is going and that the u.s doesn't necessarily win right away and you know, thousands of Americans are dying and there's, you know, very little progress after in the U.S. is pushed back, you know, by the help of like the Chinese and, and more involvement from the Soviet Union, at least on the weapons side. General Douglas MacArthur is one of the most popular generals in the U.S. at the time. Um, he's a popular World War II general. Um, he's someone that like, you know, someone like Trump references him a ton whenever he's talking speeches. He's just someone who's like a very like, like hawkish general and like more hawkish than what you would think most generals are in terms of like, but also considered a military genius at the same time. MacArthur is responsible for a lot of the U.S. victories in the war, but he's also responsible for, you know, undercutting the Truman administration and kind of just, you know, running his own operation and trying to win the war there and not really listening to, to you know to Truman's you know orders and so um, MacArthur is relieved of his duties and you know this is kind of like you know just saying at the time like again like this is like one of the most popular figures Truman is not a very popular figure in the US at the time and so this sinks his approval rate like his approval rating significantly you know, in, in 1952, Truman's approval rating in the country is at 22%. And he has a re-election, I mean, seemingly, if he wanted to run for re-election, he could still at this time, even when they pass um, the 22nd Amendment, meaning that, you know, after FDR dies, you know, they pass an amendment where uh, the U.S. does, where a president can only actually serve two terms. So, um, you know, there's no chance, you know, before all of this, like presidents could actually like serve, like if they went to like six, seven terms throughout their whole life, no one ever really does it. They kind of take like the George Washington precedent um, besides Roosevelt, because he uses the war to justify that he keeps running. But anyway, Truman, in saying that, decides not to run again for the 1952 general election, because it's almost certain that he'll lose. And also one of the most popular generals, not MacArthur, but Dwight D. Eisenhower, has, you know, finally decided to run, who chose not to run in 1948, or else he probably could have won in 1948 and we wouldn't have the second term for Truman. Yeah, he and was so, a huge part of the World War II effort. Yeah, yeah, the main the main general. And so that's kind of, you know, what encapsulates, you know Is there is there any uh, like a big event? off the top of your head or in your, or what you see in your research that defines him domestically? Defines him domestically? I mean, 
No, the thing is, is that like he is just not he doesn't he, he doesn't have any like programs that are signature to him, mainly because he's facing a Congress that isn't very friendly and, and passing a lot of his, um, you know, domestic efforts. He he, he had like tries to implement like, you know, a new initiative called like the, the fair deal instead of the new deal where like he has like I, I would say that like one of his actually really good marks of um, domestic policy is that. He opens the door up for civil rights a lot more than any other president in American history. Again, he desegregates the military, but you know also pushes for again just more like you know civil rights types of um, you know legislation in terms of you know integrating you know communities and schools and trying to like again just like persuade the public that you know the country needs to move in that direction a little bit more than again like any effort that any other prior president had done so he he set up so he sets up the stage for uh Lyndon and the ghost yes. of kennedy landmark yes because oh, roosevelt so roosevelt i mean we're going to talk about fdr a ton at some point but he's not someone who can necessarily claim <laughs> the same sort of legacy in any sense um, are so, there any um black eyes that he has in, in the domestic like uh, we discussed like uh for example i don't know uh, rover had that issue with the union where he sent in the national guard and people died because of his decisions or well, are all his uh issues come come from uh international no i mean like, like his like what, what plagued him was like his I'm, I'm, i think i guess like his inconsideration for like you know labor movements in the u.s like he was just extremely aggressive towards people who who like had to strike like i wanted to you know talk more about that a little bit because i think it's you know very very aggressive and like just emblematic kind of like again like a rover's presidency a little bit of the response to people striking and even like you know reagan did this too where like you know they had the air traffic controller strike and he just you know laid off all air traffic controllers you know this, this yeah like i feel like we haven't covered a single president that hasn't been <laughs> and and that is very telling of who is uh stuffing the pockets of our politicians Uh, in the way that they high go Respond, against yeah. the people that supposedly voted for them, you know. Yeah, it's yeah. it is shocking. Very telling. He's, he's supposed to be like you know an FDR, like I mean, not like necessarily like a disciple in the sense that Johnson is, but I mean, he's a vice president and you know a believer in the New Deal. And you would think that like you know unions would be something he's very comfortable with, and like you know giving workers you know more rights that they demand, and so. I thought that that was, you know, one of the most shocking parts of this domestic agenda. But I emphasized during the Reagan episodes that, you know, how, you know, those two kind of like shaped, um, you know, Reagan and um, Roosevelt, I should say, shaped much of our modern world of U.S. politics. But I think Truman also fits in with those two in shaping our country's whole, you know, modern approach to foreign policy. You know, we spend trillions of dollars every year in foreign aid in maintaining a military presence all around the world you know, to, you know, again, just maintain a world order that suits our nation's interests. And, and Truman had the most significant part of all presidents in inventing that. It's all facets of, in, in all facets of international affairs too, you know, everything from our modern military industrial complex to the incredible size of our State Department for diplomatic resolutions, you know, um, as well as intelligence and, and throwing massive amounts of money to maintain vital relationships around the world. He's arguably just as consequential as his president, as his president, sorry, predecessor, FDR, and he essentially, you know, just was an unknown, nationally unpopular figure when FDR died. And taking over the country, you know, at one of the most critical points in our history and, and ultimately guiding out of, 
major uncertainty. Like I'm, I'm now already saying right now, like when he left office again, it's, it's kind of in the same realm that LBJ left office, you know, kind of like this a somewhat disgraced in a lot of ways. History looks back on his presidency, you know, much more kindly the more and more we get on um, like into in, the present. Um, when I did like a cursory Google on him, there was like a headline and maybe I'll just cut this out if, if you're not sure. But like in 1952 and in 1955, there were like controversies about his uh, presidential run. Do you have any uh, insight as to that? Controversies. I mean, I don't think that. I mean, what I what I saw from it is that like the the controversy was like you know whether he should even run or not. I mean, like I don't know if that's the controversy you were like you know referencing, but I think that you know he. I think that he wanted to run again. I think he wanted to continue being president, but ultimately he didn't want to like you know just be like you know one of those presidents that lost in the primary you know that hasn't happened you know in post you know modern history you know that, that doesn't you know that's like something that's unthinkable and so that would i think you know have been too embarrassing for him to you know want to do considering like he had such a like a, a president that a presidency that went to different heights and so like yeah he ends up living until like 1972 so i mean i think that he had like you know the 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 willingness and like the drive to, and like still like you know the a long life to like still pursue the presidency but yeah he just he didn't um he didn't have the you know uh, ability to convince any more americans that you know he was worth it and i think that at that point you know the red scare was kind of in full effect and like having a, a more established military figure like eisenhower was you know a much more harder opponent to even even if he was popular, that he was going to even be able to be. So what do you think? I mean, like, do you think that, like, Truman, I mean, like, what would you say after, like, hearing this episode, you know, like, I don't know, like, do you, what do you think? Of I, I'm going to ask you a question, though, before we we, we wrap up. Uh, you say that his, his actions after the war and that, you know, shaped how we view our allies or lack thereof and how we usually inject ourselves in issues that arguably shouldn't involve us. Uh, since you know it's domestic issues between their like countries outside of us but maybe we can save it for the the fdr uh episode but how do you think it would have gone if he wouldn't have died the way that he did how similar would our decisions would have been like those all those billions of dollars that we spent on allied forming would they have gone the same way or do you think fdr would have done it uh, different uh, that's a good question i think that it would have gone similarly or, or really i mean like fdr fdr is um you know we could have been even more sophisticated about it. i don't think that that truman and fdr differ so much in, in international affairs in terms of like you know I, I don't know if again like fdr would have made the decision to drop atomic bombs you know it's very possible that he would have and i mean I'm, i also want to note that like you know truman restrained from doing that in the korean war i mean he was kind of you know not pushed but he was asked you know like was that going to be like something that was employed and he decided that you know that was you know something that you know wasn't going to happen again within at least that that war and so yeah you know i, I think that Truman inherited a lot of Roosevelt's cabinet in some ways. I mean, he did, he did put his own like cabinet members in there, but you know, a lot of like the you like the mainstays in the executive branch were set. And so, you know, a lot of his aides, a lot of, you know, people in his ear were the people who were in Roosevelt's ear. And so like it's not like he was, you know, the mastermind of necessarily every single like, you know, international decision that was being made, but you know, he definitely I think used a lot better judgment 
than people give them credit for in terms of, you know, how, you know, you know how much our country thrives, you know, throughout the rest of the 20th century. Um, so I feel like, feel like your answer kind of mirrors my summary in my head of, of Truman and in, in that kind of hard to gauge um, him as a president because it, it feels like he was just part of this huge wave, this huge global wave that like continually pushed him to make decisions or or at least our government make decisions that arguably would have been made by 99% of the presidents that we've discussed. Oh, I would have said, I, I wouldn't go that direction. I don't think it would have been 99% of presidents. I think that he just, like him and Eisenhower, I mean, I think just, I don't, again, I wouldn't say that they're exactly, you know, like super similar. I just think that in terms of- Yeah, what like, I'm saying, like, it's it's hard to gauge him as a president because- it he was just a not a minor and i don't i don't want to diminish his decisions and i i cannot imagine being in his seat saying yes drop that bomb or i cannot imagine yes send troops here or blah 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 those are huge decisions but i'm saying that it's kind of hard to gauge him as a president because it's such a huge scale that every single country and every single person involved are drilled down to just like part of world war ii or part yeah. of post world war ii kind of like this huge umbrella is the order this huge shadow is casted over his entire presidency because he's part of this huge event but i don't want to diminish his actions i would say he's one of the more decisive presidents that we've covered so far he took on a lot arguably he is the one of the better international but it was but again he's like it's he's just any president in during that era would have been the more internationally focused because that's what I'm saying. Like it's kind of hard to gauge yeah. him because it it was the necessity of the of the moment that that's forced true. him to be this this type of president. So it's kind of hard to like um oh, like when we were talking about uh, Hoover, it's kind of hard to gauge him because he was in the Great Depression. So this huge event just drowns out the president, and, and at least in how I'm trying to understand or gauge him. So yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's um, kind of hard to summarize him in my head, at least. That's really helpful for me to understand, kind of like, uh, yeah, how how I guess like I portrayed him. I mean, I I think that like part of it is like he he also like this is all brand new at the same time. Like I I definitely agree with what you said in terms of like you know any president who takes over in 1945. Like how I was like made the kind of contrast with Hoover. Like if any president we focus on the Great Depression, like yeah, they would have been internationally focused, but he definitely owns like it's very brand new that the US is like the country mm -hmm. now, or at least like you know one of the two countries now and he like doesn't I mean that that doesn't you know he 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 meets the moment I think that the, you know a lot of presidents like what distinguishes good presidents I think if they are able to like you know meet the moment in that kind of sense yeah. where like I not, and, and and like that to all his credit like right and and, and even like just with like not being popular at home, that doesn't necessarily like drive him away from, like he still, I think makes good decisions all throughout that. I think when presidents become unpopular, that I mean, it kind of like makes them, you know, more so like try to play towards the public more and like try to be more like politically um, strategical in terms of just pleasing people and, and things, or like at least like pleasing like people in headlines and media and it does, I, mm -hmm. I don't think he took that direction I think that he still stayed true to you know 
what he thought would be the right decision in terms of, of international cooperation. And so, yeah, it's, it's a mixed bag a bit, but I generally lean Truman to be like a, a more favorable president than most. Uh, where were you rank him in, um, not, no, not you, sorry. Where does uh, historians usually uh, place him in the order? He, can, he, he is a feature in the top 10. In a lot of top 10 yeah or you know top 15 i would say like he's definitely in a 10 to 15 range for for most historians all right then we're uh we're up to uh everybody's favorite <laughs> section of the <laughs> of our uh little podcast uh last time around surprisingly i was shocked when this happened uh lbj defeated john tyler as john tyler right i remember his name correctly yes yes uh, yeah because that name is so Very forgettable cool. <laughs> um he defeated john tyler as neil's favorite president of all time legally binding is uh truman gonna be able to overthrow the dynasty of lbj he just keeps defeating people yeah now now look okay like i this one i thought about this for a bit even before the podcast i was like i don't know who i'm gonna choose here and and then that you know i thought as i learned i, I kind of listened to other podcasts to help me out in terms of trying to understand some of these subjects and i was listening to one you know on the korean war is sort of like, you know, how that was like the same, like, like Vietnam, like followed the mistakes of the Korean War to a T almost, you know, like, mm. we like, didn't we underestimated just like, you know, how like powerful the North was and like, you know, how like messy it is to get involved in the country in that way. And there's a lot of intricate details in between those two of like, you know, how we could have learned from the mistakes of the Korean War. And really like, you know, engaged in vietnam in a much more like you know intelligent way and you know johnson makes just a complete mess of it and you know even though it seems like he has like you know domestically almost perfect record i think that i, I don't think that he's a better president than truman i think truman Ooh. is gonna win this one um oh I, my I, god I, the upset <laughs> i i think you know truman didn't do anything this you know that was disastrous at home he never, I don't think he made any really big disastrous decisions. I think you know, the Korean War was a very like new type of like, you know, arena where we didn't really know what was going to happen and kind of like what the implications were and what we could like draw off of. And so I'm going to give a lot more, yeah, a, a lot more leeway to Truman on that end. And I'm going to say that Truman, Truman was a better president than Lyndon B. Johnson. Truman and Lin Neil just dropped the atomic bomb <laughs> on Lyndon B. Johnson. Uh, we are leaving him in the past. Uh, that was a good streak. I want to say it was like five episodes in a mm -hmm. row that where he yeah. won something was, like that. Yeah. Uh, somebody fact checked me on that. But moving forward, Truman, Truman, Neil's favorite president of all time. World <laughs> War II vet, comic bomb swinging, Korean War. But he he did have a good track record and domestic, and he was very pro uh, anti segregation. That 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 sentence didn't make sense. Pro anti yeah pro anti segregation. Does that make sense? I think, I think that does make yeah that that yeah. All right, so moving forward, Truman is the bar to beat. Who is the next president trying to beat that bar? We got we got another exciting one in, in Franklin Pierce. So Franklin Pierce, another <laughs> name that somebody would have asked me the name. President name with the uh, Franklin Pierce would not have gone in that in my head at all. Uh, all right, so thank you, thank you for listening. This was fun. Uh, follow us on all the socials. 
on on President Podcast. Let Neil know if he missed anything about Truman you want to discuss, any fact checking that he where we're humans, we made mistakes. And yeah. and as always, uh we look forward to next uh, episode in two weeks. All right guys, take care. Thanks, Mike Truman. Yeah. Talker. Yeah.